Hello, I'm ESG Clarity Global Deputy Editor Natasha Turner and welcome to the last podcast of the year from ESG Out Loud. I'm sure we can all agree it's been another busy year in the ESG investment space and with many other headlines originating in the US this year, ESG Clarity has truly become the global news source we moved it into being at the end of last year with coverage of ESG and sustainable investing in the EU and the UK, the US and Asia. So in the spirit of being global, and because ESG Clarity has its own podcast run by our US news editor, Emil Halley, which you can just subscribe to by searching for ESG Out Loud US. In this final episode, we're going to be looking at an Asia perspective. And coming up first is the chat our research editor, Christine Dawson, had with Matthews Asia head of ESG, Kathleen Collins. After that, to end off the year, we've got the final clip from our interview with oceanographer Emma Boland, where she shares her thoughts on how investment can help halt climate change. You can find the first four clips from this interview at the end of regular episodes of the podcast from this year. We also have sector special episodes you may want to go back to and enjoy. So thank you so much for continuing to listen to ESG Out Loud and we will see you in the new year. Hi Katie, thanks so much for coming along to the ESG Clarity offices and for joining us today. So we're going to be looking at sustainable investing in Asia. So a good place to start, COP27, which happened quite recently now. Um, Did you see any useful cues in there for sustainable finance professionals in Asia at all? Sure, thanks for having me. So COP27 has been pretty exciting because it's located, or it was located in, in Egypt, which is an emerging economy that I think has a lot of pollution and and real life kind of um, impacts of of climate change that we're seeing on a day-to-day basis. And the other thing that that I think really came out of COP is that emerging markets and especially some of the uh, lesser developed economies are really facing the brunt of the impacts of climate change as well as uh, weather patterns that have been changing. Uh, drought, um, extreme climate events such as floods. And what was really interesting for me was this uh, desire from a lot of the developed nations to see, or developing nations to see more uh, financing contributions from developed nations. So this is something that uh, was a part of previous COPs. But unfortunately, some of the commitments in terms of financing, loans, um, or grants haven't really come through. And one of the things that was talked about a lot at this COP was trying to create some sort of damage and lost fund and who should be responsible for contributing to that that fund. Should it be solely the industrialized developed nations, um, namely the West, Europe, the US, large emitters in the past. Um, Of course, the US is still a large emitter, but should other large emitting uh, countries also contribute to that fund? So countries like China, like India. And so it's going to be really interesting to see how some of the financing plays out for some of these uh, countries that are so susceptible to to climate change and that have really seen economies kind of being ravaged. I mean, if, if you look at what happened to Pakistan um, with some of the flooding over the last year, um, and, and then some of the low-lying island nations, these are really where uh, countries need a lot of, of funding. Now, 
another interesting thing for from the Asian standpoint is that a lot of these countries uh, have at their kind of their core in terms of uh, public finance fossil fuels. They're they're very important in terms of the overall mix for uh, energy, but also uh, revenues for the government. So one thing that that I saw that was very interesting uh, came out of Indonesia most recently. So a $20 billion commitment, an initiative by Japan, by Indonesia, and by the US to contribute to getting that country off coal and getting renewables up to 34% of the energy mix by 2030. Now, this is going to be uh, a huge task because they really need to transform the grid and redirect more of the uh, power systems to renewables. And hopefully uh, we, we do see this work out well. It's a mix between uh, government funding, but also private funding, which is, which is quite interesting. Um, and there, there might be other, uh, I think, countries that can look towards this deal as, uh, as, as sources of, of inspiration for other financing ideas. So take a country like uh, Korea as well. This is one that the, the availability of renewable energy is very, very low. And so what is it going to take? It's probably going to take a lot of international cooperation to get more renewable energy and electricity generation uh, in that country because it's just it's not set up for that. So whether it is working with countries that are producing uh, green hydrogen and it's importing that for its energy needs, especially for a large industry, that might be uh, an interesting um, an interesting idea. Uh, another thing, unfortunately, that, that we saw is that there had to be some, I think, sacrifices made uh, due to, to the, the energy crisis that we're in right now. So unfortunately, uh, Japan delayed its own carbon tax recently, just given the high energy costs there. Um, and, and so countries have to make some, some tough decisions um, when it comes to actually implementing some of these policies that in the short term right now we are you know are seeing the the effects of the the crisis in in ukraine and what that's doing to energy markets and i think on one hand it will uh push the the green transition but there's going to be some some short-term pains because at the end of the day uh people are paying much much more for for energy um and and that's a that's a real issue for um for politicians i think um, but also just the day-to-day, -day, you know, uh, uh, consumer. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Okay, thanks. Well, there's so many interesting things that came out of it. And as you say, let's, um, let's keep an eye on how all that actually pans out in, in practice, especially in the context of the energy crisis. But um, I wonder, looking ahead to next year, in Asia, perhaps um, there are some slightly more concrete things on the horizon in terms of regulation or uh, other innovations that you're seeing coming through that might might be of interest to the um, sustainable investor in Asia. Sure. So there have been a lot of uh, regulatory movements, I think, over the last few years that have picked up speed in Asia. 
And some of those have largely taken the form of uh, SFDR-like mandatory disclosures, especially for fund managers, as well as different ESG reporting standards that various jurisdictions are looking to adopt. So on the corporate side, you know, we, we do have the ISSB, the International Sustainability Standards Board, coming out um, with their, their uh, reporting standards early next year. And right now what we're seeing is that the various countries are looking at how their current reporting frameworks can align closely with that of the ISSB standards to create a global baseline for sustainability reporting information. Now, it's a little bit difficult for some countries. Um, If if you think about some of the things that need to be reported, such as scope three emissions, Mm -hmm. that's quite difficult um, for a lot of companies in developing countries that may not uh, know how to calculate their their scope three emissions or may have to rely on on estimates in some instances. But we are seeing some interesting um, sustainability disclosure standards coming out from various countries that have already largely adopted um, the TCFD, which is great, the Mm -hmm. Task Force for Climate Related um, Disclosures. And the ISSB takes into account the TSFD standards as well. So I think what we'll start to see is um, a little bit more convergence, hopefully, and a reduction in this alphabet soup of sustainability reporting standards. And then on the the fund manager side, uh, for asset managers, there are much more uh, regulations coming into play with regard to uh, reducing greenwashing. Mm -hmm. So for example, the SFC, the regulator in Hong Kong, they introduced climate considerations for large asset managers. And that kicked in um, earlier this year and will go into effect. Um, we'll, we'll see some of the disclosures around that next year. So that, that'll that be very interesting. I mean, I, I think it's a little bit more of a lighter touch approach than, say, the, the disclosure requirements for uh, fund managers operating here in, in Europe. But it's it's important because, you know, take a place like Hong Kong, very susceptible to climate change, um, especially with regard to physical risk, you know, rising uh, sea levels. And perhaps not all of the disclosure uh, data points are, are available, but at least for fund managers operating there, you know, taking into consideration these climate related risks in the investment decision making will be crucial. And the end uh, buyers of these financial products will want to know that the fund manager has considered them. And so that's an interesting uh, regulation to, to watch out for next year in, in Hong Kong. Mm, yeah, definitely. That's a very interesting one. I think globally as well is um, disclosure of physical transition risk. I know it's, um, it's become mandatory, whether TCFD is mandatory. Yeah. Um, but I wonder... Yeah, how how are you finding the the challenge of factoring that into portfolios in in Asia? Sure. So I think for some industries or sectors, the consideration of of climate is much more obvious. So sectors 
that have a larger environmental footprint, it's just an easier association uh, to make. So things like oil and gas, um, heavy manufacturing, industrials, utilities, of course. And for us, you know, this is not likely to be that uh, large in terms of a percentage of our overall exposure in terms of uh, sector allocations. That being said, I think climate does impact all industries in some way. So whether it is uh, food and beverage and throughout the supply chain and changing uh, weather patterns or uh, things like like crop yields, how that can actually input some of the the sourcing and, and procurement. So that's something that you know we we need to talk to all of our portfolio companies about. Another thing is uh, financial services. So of course in in Asia, you know one of the things that's very interesting um, for us in terms of a sustainability theme is is financial inclusion. But at the same time, you are lending uh, money to small and, and mid-sized um, businesses and enterprises. How are those banks also considering environmental con- um, risks in their own uh, lending decisions? So financed emissions for financial institutions is really important and is another way that these, um, these transition risks can come into play. I think also when it comes to physical assets, you really need to speak to your portfolio companies about uh, whether or not, you know, their insurance premiums have gone up depending on where they're located. Are they located in low-lying areas? Are they in areas that are more prone to extreme weather events? So it does manifest in all uh, industries, but it manifests in, in very different ways. And some might not be, you know, uh, immediately obvious but that's that's why I think having this framework, such as the TCFD, does uh, allow uh, a corporate, an investor, to really think about all of the various impacts of climate, whether it's regulatory, certain carbon taxes that uh, could could impact uh, a company's costs in the future and competitiveness. It could be um, business and, and innovation risk. It could be physical. Uh, and so there are many manifestations. And as, as a fund manager, you know, what, what we're looking at is really that the portfolio companies that we're invested in have thought through these risks, understand them and have a long term plan. Also, that their own capital allocation and decisions are in line with where we are headed for the next uh, 20 years. Right. Because uh, a lot of companies can make net zero commitments have targets but what are those incremental steps what are the milestones and and how are they actually measuring and and managing it and where are they actually putting their investment dollars is that aligned with kind of the um the path that we we want to see and and everything that you know was discussed at cop 27 this year Mm. yeah so i mean aligned with some of the scenarios or at least accounting for some of the climate change scenarios for 20 years is I mean it seems like quite a challenge for companies anywhere (laughs) but um are you are you finding that they are actually managing to do this in Asia these companies so we're finding that a lot of the large companies are uh, I think that they have the the resources 
to really understand these issues. What we're finding is that a lot of companies in Asia have created dedicated teams um, to looking at these issues in a lot more detail. However, some of the smaller and medium-sized companies still have a long way to go. And a lot of times it's just, you know, educating them on on these uh, these topics and trying to understand what they are do, doing internally to educate their own teams. So whether it's things like uh, a, a, a session for their board of directors related to climate or the creation of ESG committees that report back up to uh, top management. So we are seeing a lot of, of movement on this. I think, you know, the other thing that we're seeing is more openness to talk to investors about these issues. I, I, a few years ago, I mean, it would be very difficult to get an ESG-focused call um, with some of the companies in Asia. And now we are seeing much more engagement from their side and even specific uh, ESG or, or climate-related roadshows that companies are doing to really get their story out and help investors understand how they are playing a role in the transition to a low-carbon economy. And I can think of you know a couple examples even in the, the auto manufacturing space. They really want to talk to investors and other stakeholders about how their long-term strategy is aligned, whether it's related to um, trans- transitioning their internal combustion engines to um, hybrid vehicles or electric vehicles. Uh, so that's really, really interesting. A lot of the large companies have realized that they have a, a big role to play and they want to tell their story. Mm. Yeah, well, that's great. Um, so uh, when it comes to, for example, active engagement with companies in Asia, um, so I suppose, yeah, are there any particular issues that are coming up uh, when you're engaging with companies which, I don't know, could form a, something of a trend or... Yeah, just what are you seeing on that front? Yeah, so in terms of active engagement, I think one of the biggest areas where we can help is helping our portfolio companies understand the expectations of international institutional investors. So whether that is more data points being reported in their annual report or sustainability report, or the fact that if they don't have this information reported, then perhaps third-party ESG rating providers might estimate or model their emissions based on peers within their sector or industry. And if they're not reporting on it, it could be the case that their modeled or estimated emissions are actually higher. Mm. So if they are doing something in terms of measuring whether it's emissions, water use, hazardous waste, the energy efficiency of their operations, that they really do need to tell their story because there are a lot of data providers out there and they are delivering information to key market participants that are actually creating investment products based on this data. And if they're not 
reporting on it and there are you know estimates out there in the market that are then being used for product creation you know potentially a, a company could be either left out or misrepresented and so that's something that has seemed to really help the the conversation in terms of getting companies to understand why improving their own sustainability disclosure is beneficial. It could mean getting included in, say, a a low carbon index that then a product is, is based on. And if they're not reporting this information, investors, you know, don't have anything to go off. So, so that's uh, something that, that I think is, is a really good kind of tool for, for investors to use in terms of engagement. It's, you know, if you're not saying anything, you know, it could be detrimental uh, in the long term. So, so better today to, to get some information out, even it's on, if, it, if it's on kind of a, a phased approach. If you can only do it for one part of your operations, but you have targets to you know get expand the scope of that reported information over the next few years so i think target goal setting and just the lack of um, disclosure is it that's an area where where we find engagement uh very useful especially in some of the small and, and mid-cap companies that are really just starting their their journey with trying to understand these expectations mm. and does that angle work on the social side as well as the environmental side when you're having those conversations so and governance i suppose as well let's not forget the governance yes so it, it definitely does i mean governance is something that we will engage with uh companies kind of agnostically as to to what sector or industry uh, they are in so whether it's related to board composition um or things like uh the the committees that exist on a board and and what their roles and, and remits are. Uh, I think that is kind of part part and parcel of, of our engagement. On the social side, it depends. I think we will try to engage with companies on disclosing certain social indicators that are important to the uh, the industry that they operate in. So for example, if it's a large, um, tech firm and human capital management is really, really crucial to the company's long-term success, then more information around things like diversity and inclusion data, things like turnover or uh, internal uh, retention and uh, promotion metrics. We think things like that are key. If it's something that is more, um, say, in, in the manufacturing uh, area it could be around health and safety metrics, and I think yes, being able to pinpoint very specific data points, not you know a whole list of of twenty five plus indicators. If you go in with a with a focused uh, mindset and and really link why these specific disclosure topics are important to their business, it does tend to to work in terms of getting companies to understand the value. Another link that we've seen here is, and, and this relates to governance, is compensation metrics that are tied to ESG or sustainability 
measures. So it could be how much of a, a company's variable compensation is dependent on reaching long-term targets that are tied to diversity, um, environmental targets such as emissions reduction. It could be a company that has, uh, you know, a large workforce that is dependent on uh, a safe operating environment. So it could be on having KPIs related to health, health and safety. And so that's that's another area that we have seen a bit of, of movement um, in Asia, linking long-term compensation KPIs to, to ESG topics, whether it's health and safety in the environment or things like diversity. And, and that does seem to work as well. That's great. Okay. Well, just one more quick question for you. So it's a whole year away now, but um, COP28, <laughs> is there anything you'd like to see or what would be on your wish list to see in sustainable finance in Asia by the time we get to COP28 in Dubai next year? Yeah, hard to know, but a, a few things come to mind. So I think right now you know this this cop 27 we saw a lot of uh, nitty-gritty negotiating um and hopefully next year we will actually see that these commitments financing commitments and and deals that have been hammered out come to fruition because we've seen over the last few years that some of the commitments in terms of financing hasn't come through, especially from some of the um, developed markets. And, you know, the energy crisis that we're in right now did throw a wrench in it. So hopefully by next year, um, we won't be in the same energy crisis still. Mm -hmm. And perhaps there will be more uh, political will uh, among these, um, uh, all all of the countries to actually have put in place the, the policies that uh, they have kind of, you know, negotiated this time. I think another thing that, you know, I'm hopeful for is more global coordination of carbon taxes. You know, you see today very different prices depending on the market. The price of carbon in, in China is quite low compared to, to Europe, and there's not appetite for... I think, like I said, in, in Japan, even introducing that in today's current environment. So I would hope for COP28, there's more appetite to really get everyone on the table in having one uh, kind of common ground for, for carbon taxes, because at the end of the day, you know, a lot of industry will move where the carbon price is low. So today, having this divergence in, in price isn't necessarily conducive to uh, lowering emissions overall. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's great. Well, thank you so much. It's been really, really interesting chatting with you. And as I said, thanks for coming all the way to our offices as well. And uh, yeah. Uh, Anytime. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks. Do you have any thoughts about where kind of private investment or or private money, are there easy wins for for, for that as well, where that could be channeled. Yeah, sure. So on a on a personal level, people often like to pitch this as oh, it's either or it's a it's personal choice versus systemic change, and mm. that 
we can't do both. So some people say, well, there's no point in making changes to your lifestyle because, you know, 70% of emissions are caused by just a few companies um, or a few countries, which is true. But uh, it's also been shown that um, if we make small changes to our lifestyle and uh, that can have an impact on other people. So there's two aspects to it. Yes, we need systemic change. So I'd say if in any way that you, it's possible for you to su support policies, tell your politicians, whoever you support, whatever party it is that you support, that you want them to make policy changes to affect, to reduce climate change, but also making positive changes in your lifestyle to reduce the impact um, of uh, your yourself might not change things overall, but can have a very positive impact on others. So, you know, be a positive example. If you feel, if you want to go vegan or cut down your flights, or you just want to recycle more, or you want to get more recycling bins in your office, or petition your council for some more bike parking, you know, that doesn't know when you account that one tiny action, it, it won't make a difference. But the impacts on uh, on others and the kind of ripples that might follow from that could be much larger. So I'd say do both. <laughs> Tell your politicians you want change and try and be um, a positive ad advocate in any way that you can in your own life. As for investment, well, I, I don't know anything about investments, but if I were, I feel like I'd think about what, what is the future that I want? Um, we know that the cost of adapting to climate change is going to far outweigh any cost of doing action now. So I know that um, you can't, you know, that's maybe not how investment works because costs in the future are not the same as costs now. But if I, you know, I'd like to think that I would do everything I can to make sure basically any, every dollar invested in carbon that makes carbon dioxide is going to cost humanity and our children far more down the line than it does now. So conversely, every dollar or pound that's invested in something that actively reduces carbon now is going to you know, have a multiplicative, multiplicative impact in the future. It's going to help humanity, it's help our children, help our economy. Find us on SoundCloud or iTunes by searching for ESG Out Loud.